Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 63, After Lignano, The Cool Crusade and the Italian One. If you had any doubt about the importance of the Battle of Legnano in Italian history, you just have to listen to the words of the Italian national anthem, in particular the second and fourth stanzas, which are not usually sung. For centuries we have been downtrodden, ridiculed, because we are not one people, because we are divided. Let a single flag bring us together. The hope of being one, the hour has come. From the Alps to Sicily, from the Alps to Sicily, everywhere is Legnano. Every man has the heart and the hand of Ferruccio. The children of Italy are called Balilla. The sound of every bell has rung for the Vespers. I'll bet you were afraid I was going to sing that, weren't you? Only two cities are mentioned in the national anthem, in the extended version. One, obviously, is Rome. The other is Lignano. If you would like to know more about the anthem, like who is this Ferruccio guy, and why on earth would all the Italian kids be called Balilla, which, in a way, they were during the fascist period, and finally, which country is explicitly insulted in the anthem, then it's the perfect time to become a patron on Patreon because I'll be talking about the National Anthem this week. Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa had lost the Battle of Legnano on the 29th of May, 1176, barely escaping with his own life. He did not lose his life, and he did not lose his empire. Yet, from now on, he could not threaten the Italian communes of the Lombard League with force. All talks and exchanges from then on were conducted without the threat of war. The year after, in 1177, in Venice, an official truce was reached, but not definitive peace. At least not with the communes. You'll remember that the League had some less present but not less important members, i.e. the Norman King of Sicily, William II, the Byzantine Emperor, and the Pope. It was with the latter that Barbarossa made peace. All the Pope really wanted in the end was to be recognised as such, that is, the Pope, and so it was. Things were a lot more complicated between the Emperor and the Communes, and talks went on for seven years. In this time, neither Frederick nor the Commune sat twiddling their thumbs, but continued with a diplomatic offensive. Indeed, in this period, Cremona returned to the side of the Emperor, and Como to the side of the League. Frederick went on a grand tour of his allied cities. He went to Cremona, Pavia, Genova, Tortona, Asti, Alba, Acqui, Torino, Evrea, Ventimiglia, Albenga, Savona, Imola, Faenza, Ravenna, Forlì, Rimini, and to visit the Marquis of Monferrato. 
It made me think of those band tour T-shirts that people wear with all the dates of the concerts. I wonder if he did something similar, like a tour tapestry, maybe. Frederick Barbarossa live in Ravenna, for example. You will remember that one of the big beefs that the communes had with the emperor was that in the 1160s he had imposed German imperial representatives in the cities, whose oppressive governments had led to all of this trouble in the first place. Now he made sure that he put Italians in positions of power. On the other side, the cities of the League were. Venice, Treviso, Padova, Vicenza, Verona, Brescia, Ferrara, Mantova, Bergamo, Lodi, Milano, Como, Novara, Vercelli, Alessandria, Piacenza, Bobbio, Parma, Reggio Emilia, Yei, Modena, Bologna, and the Malaspina family. The numbers of cities on both sides were quite similar, but the cities on the side of the League were far more important than the others. Indeed, among the supporters of the Emperor, there are only about four major cities. The main issues of contention were two: the autonomy claimed by the communes, and the fate of the city of Alessandria, a tangible affront to the pride of the emperor. It had been founded by the commune in the name of Pope Alexander, in opposition to Barbarossa. This issue was solved with a stroke of genius. The city would remain, but it would be re-founded by the emperor with the name of Cesarea. That is just a sketch waiting to happen. The issue of autonomy for the communes would be treated more or less with the same PR table-turning stunt. It would not be the communes who had won their independence on the battlefield of Legnano, but the emperor, with his great noble generosity, who would allow them their autonomy just because he was a nice guy. The communes would have imperial representatives in the city that they would swear loyalty to, but the representatives would not interfere with the administration of the city. All of this was fine with the communes; they had what they wanted. All they had to do, in true Italian style, was totally ignore what had been decided. Cesarea soon went back to being Alessandria, and it is to this day. And after a few years. Everyone just sort of forgot about swearing loyalty to the imperial representatives. So it was that on the twenty-fifth of June, eleven eighty-three, in Constance, on the border between modern-day Germany and Switzerland, Federico Barbarossa and the League finally signed a peace treaty. After a struggle that had lasted thirty years, the rights of the communes were finally recognized. As was the existence of the League itself, which the Emperor had initially declared illegal. With regard to Barbarossa, we've had a lot of fun with him, but we're not quite ready to say goodbye. We need him just a sec to set up what happened next with the Kingdom of Sicily. First of all, let's have a Pope check, because before the Peace of Constance came around, the papal heavyweight Alexander III. Died on the thirtieth of August, eleven eighty-one. He had reigned for a considerable twenty-two years. The next pope was Lucius the Third. He was in his early eighties when he was elected, so not destined to last that long. 
He did, however, have time to wrangle with the emperor about the inheritance of the lands of Matilda of Tuscany, stretching from Tuscany into the Emilia area. He also lived long enough to blow his top over a big idea that had come to Frederick. You see, William II of Sicily had no heirs. The closest was his aunt Constance. Frederick had the bright idea of offering his son, Henry's hand in marriage, to said auntie. William, the nephew, was in favour of this, but the Pope went mental. The kingdom of Sicily in the hands of the Hohenstaufen meant that he would be totally surrounded and the possible next step could only be to gobble up the papal states as well. Lucius III didn't have much time to oppose it because he died in 1185 and, being dead, makes it hard to oppose anything really. His successor, Urban III, was just as angry, though he was really powerless to do anything. In 1168, Henry Hohenstaufen, son of Frederick I, married the heiress to the throne of Sicily. If everything went according to plan, their child would rule from the North Sea to the Mediterranean. But that's getting a bit too far ahead, plus we're making it sound way too easy, because not everybody was going to agree with that succession. For now, the fate of the Norman Hauteville dynasty in southern Italy was sealed, and soon it would disappear more quickly than it had appeared over a century before. Besides this bad news, even more devastating news arrived from the Orient. Legend would have it that the news was so shocking that it gave Pope Urban III a heart attack and killed him. The Muslim leader Salah al-Din Saladin had taken Jerusalem. Pope Gregory VIII took the place of Urban, and Gregory and Frederick put aside their differences, and the Pope started preaching the Third Crusade. Now, this crusade was the one you wanted to be on. It was the cool kids' crusade, the one for the in-crowd, the jocks, the popular kids. No nerds allowed here. This was the stuff of legend. Could you imagine the King of France, the King of England, and the Holy Roman Emperor banding together and causing havoc in the Holy Land with their awesomeness? Can't you just imagine the three fighting side by side? Well, it stops at imagination, because Barbarossa never made it to the Holy Land. He set out on the 11th of May, 1189, he was around 67 years old. Now, that's about the age of my auntie. She enjoys sitting down in the conservatory with a good book, a nice walk down to her local for a pint of cider, a good cup of mid-morning tea, and why not, the occasional trip a couple of times a year, maybe somewhere warm like Greece or Italy, sensible things one should do in one's late 60s. One thing you definitely should not do at that age is lead a whopping 12,000-man army off on a crusade. It's the kind of thing that can lead you to getting thrown off your horse as you are crossing a river and drowned. Well, 
On the 10th of June 1190, while Frederick was crossing the Salef River in modern-day Turkey, he was apparently thrown off his horse and either had a heart attack from the shock of the cold water or drowned, weighed down by his armour. With the inglorious death of a great emperor, the idea of an empire that extended from Germany down to include all of northern Italy also died. We now have to say goodbye to our old friend Freddy. He has given us some good times. The popular Cool Kid Crusade continued on without the German kid. Richard the Lionheart and Philip of France continued without him. The crusade will also have to continue without us, as it is not our tale to tell. You can, however, go over to the History of the Crusades podcast and listen to episodes 53 to 66. What we need to know about the Third Crusade is that, although it was a relatively successful campaign, they did not manage to take Jerusalem, so the problem was still open. Therefore, a few popes down the road, another pope tried it again. Pope Gregory VIII had launched the crusade, but had not seen how it went since he had died less than two months after his election. After Gregory was Clement III. After Clement III came Celestine III, who lasted a whole seven years, and finally, after Celestine III came Innocent III. That's a lot of thirds. Now, I love the Irish accent, but one thing is that if I had one now, there would be a lot of turds lying around, wouldn't there now? Anyway, I'm after digressing again. That gets us to the third we are interested in, Innocent, who is the one who launched the Fourth Crusade. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Fourth Crusade, since it was a sort of an Italian crusade. At least there were more Italians in it. The intended leader was a man named Theobald of Champagne, which is a cool place to come from, although I don't know if they were actually already making champagne back then. He sent word to Venice once he had started gathering his troops, because those troops couldn't just walk over the sea towards the Holy Land. The Doge, the ruler of Venice at the time, was Enrico Dandolo, a youthful young man in his early 90s. He accepted, albeit for a huge pile of cash. When word got back to Theobald that the Venetians had accepted, although he was suffering from high fever and dysentery, he jumped on his horse and headed out. Then he keeled over and died. So, another takeaway lesson from this episode. Don't go on a crusade in your old age, and if you have high fever and dysentery, maybe wait a bit before you leave for one. His place was taken by Bonifacio of Monferrato. We've been talking about Monferrato quite a bit as a stout ally of the Holy Roman Emperor. This is an area in northwestern Italy between Turin and the newly founded Alessandria. The armies made their way down to Venice, where Dandolo wanted the cash up front. 
The problem was that the leaders of the crusade didn't have the cash. A compromise was reached. In exchange for the logistic services, the crusaders would help the Venetians take back the city of Zara in modern-day Croatia from the Kingdom of Hungary. The Pope was furious. Not only was the King of Hungary a devout Christian, but the stop-off was a huge detour from the main plan. We will see that in the end, the whole crusade was basically a giant detour and never actually got to its intended destination. So it was that in 1102, the crusading army started out its fight against the Muslims by attacking other Christians. Zara was easily taken, but once the French and Venetian troops had settled into the city, fighting broke out between the two groups, and for days the streets were full of bodies and spilt blood. Not the best start to taking back Jerusalem. It was at this point that another opportunity for distraction came along when a delegation arrived from Alexios, the exiled heir to the throne of the Byzantine Empire. He was asking the Crusaders to help him take back his empire for his father, Isaac, from his usurping uncle, confusingly also named Alexius, who was, it seems, more intent on his own entertainment, his animals and his plants, rather than running an empire. Nephew Alexios promised to maintain the crusading army and fleet for a year, and loads and loads of cash. The Pope was brought on board with the promise of bringing the Eastern Church under his authority, and the Venetians were further tempted with the prospect of ousting the influence of Pisa from the area around Constantinople. So, instead of heading for the Holy Land, the armies marched on the Bosphorus River and Constantinople. Despite the limited amount of defences of the city, a garrison from Pisa and some mercenary troops, the siege of the city was a lot harder than expected. That is when the Venetians did what they knew how to do best and took to the sea. Uncle Alexios hastily equipped some Byzantine ships, the Drummonds, for battle complete with the formidable Greek fire. However, they were not able to do much damage to the Venetian fleet. Seeing that all was lost, Alexios the usurper fled, and Isaac was released. His son Alexios was made co-emperor, and legitimacy was restored. Yay, hooray, happy ending. Everyone lived happily ever after although not really. It was now time for Isaac and Alexios to cough up what had been promised to the Crusaders. They had to empty the imperial coffers and put heavy taxes on the people. Times were hard and the people were not happy. When a fire broke out in the Jewish quarter after a violent brawl between the inhabitants and some Flemish knights, it was the last straw. Alexios was blamed for the troubles and was deposed by a rebellion in the city. He was imprisoned and later strangled. The leaders of the rebellion now set their sights on the leaders of the crusading army with a plot to eliminate them. 
The plot was discovered, and that started the merciless sacking of the city of Constantinople. Nothing was spared, not even the most sacred relics, and people could be seen wandering out of the city with arms, legs, heads, and all kinds of other bits. The Dodger didn't get in on the fun early enough and couldn't get his hands on any body parts, and he had to be content with a piece of the true cross. The Crusaders did not only divide the loot from Constantinople, they also divided up the empire and assigned themselves pieces of it in mini states that ended up fighting against each other and being attacked by neighboring kingdoms. It was in the midst of this mess that the Doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo, died at the tender age of 94. Bonifacio, the other Italian leader of the Detour Italian Crusade, ended up being defeated by the Bulgars and having his head stuck on a lance to be ridiculed. There is a lot more to be said about the Fourth Crusade, the sack of Constantinople and the Western conquest of the Byzantine Empire. We've just gone over it in a very superficial way. It's all there in the History of the Crusades podcast, with a wonderful Australian accent, one of my favourite English-language accents, and Robin Pearson, in his History of Byzantium, is also almost there. You will also find it in Talking History, the Italian Unification, in the Venice miniseries. We instead have a question to ponder. We've mentioned Venice a few times over the last few episodes, backing the Lombard League, and now here, involved in the Fourth Crusade. So, how did we get from a bunch of fishing shacks in the middle of a swampy lagoon to an international superpower who can take down an empire? That is why next time we'll take a break from the forward progress and start taking a look at the maritime republics, starting with La Serenissima, the most serene republic of Venice. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Bill, Ed, Eric, Jeff, Joshua, Sean and Jimmy, the Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron, Benjamin, Eric, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mattia, Roberta, Scott, Thomas and YR, the Marguerite Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony, Ben, Celine, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, Vincent, and the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level Sen, Paolo, and the soon-to-be-very-happy-I-hope reactionary Venetian for the series coming up on Venice. Welcome, welcome, welcome to new supporter Paul. I know the list is getting a bit long, so maybe we'll have to figure out another way of uh, thanking you soon. Thank you so much for your support. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. 
and consult timelines, maps, and everything you need to navigate our country's complicated history. Thanks again to everyone, and until next time, arrivederci. My loyal subjects, who would never and never have rebelled against me because you think I'm awesome, we are here today for the founding of a great new city. That was definitely not here already. Also, because only I can found cities. Mommy, who's that man? Emperor Barbarossa, darling. What is he doing? He is founding our city. What does that mean? It means creating a new city. But don't we already have one? Yes, darling. This sounds silly. <sighs> That's meant for you, my love. And soon... We will have a great ceremony in which I, who am not only awesome, but super nice and generous, will give you communes the possibility to govern yourselves. This is definitely not because there was any battle or anything. And if there had been, it would have been so not fair because we were outnumbered, but there wasn't a battle anyway. It was all fake news. So, see you in Constance. Freddy out. Peace. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.